Hi friends. Sadly, the live recording of this talk didn't work, so I'm doing take two in the office. So we're in this series called Leaving for the 99, Going After the Lost. We've looked at the power of story, we've looked at the power of signs and wonders, and today we're going to look at the power of words or proclamation. And I want to start by taking up John Carter's challenge from a couple of weeks ago. Is to, um, is to tell our story of becoming a Christian in two minutes. So here we go. When I was three and three quarters, or as I used to say, three and three inches, I had a simple but unshakable belief that God loved me and that Jesus died for my sins. I wanted to become a Christian, but mum kept putting me off it and saying I was too young, you know, come back in a few years. So I went to her with this old school toy, a magna doodle. It's like this slate which you could draw on by raising dark iron filings to a white surface with magnets. I went to her having scribbled all over it and I said, this is all the things I've done wrong, mum. And there was another magnet, the opposing one, that released all the filings with one swipe. And it went from dark to white. And I said, this is what Jesus did for me when he died on the cross. He forgave my sins and got rid of them. It was a simple metaphor, wasn't it, as a four-year-old? But let's be honest, I nailed it. See, one of my earliest memories was kneeling with both my parents and my little brother Joe at the foot of their bed and praying to become a Christian. After this, I was so excited to share this news that Jesus didn't just love me, but actually everyone that I met. And to my parents' embarrassment, I told everyone. Doctors, nursery school teachers, bus drivers. One highlight was when I took a toy microphone from the back of a shop. I sort of marched past my mum who was busy buying birthday cards and just went straight out onto the street, the high street. And I just shouted at the top of my lungs into this plastic microphone, Jesus loves you. And fast forward 25 years. I have a go at sharing my faith from time to time, but I'm a long way from that courageous four-year-old. I wonder if you can see that in you. Was there a time when you felt compelled to share your newfound faith? I'm not saying we all need to get down to the station with microphones and loudspeakers. I think what I'm saying is it seems like a true response to an experience of Jesus' love is to share it with others. And I'm saying that somewhere on the line, that true response seems to get a bit lost under something else. Perhaps it's apathy or fear or a sense of inadequacy. So today we're going to talk about evangelism. And if I was you, I'd be shifting in my seat a bit. It's a sort of Marmite topic, isn't it? You either love it or you hate it. And I'm sure many of you are the latter. So why don't we start with the word. It's a Greek word in the Bible in the New Testament, it means euangelion. It's like a good announcement or news. And behind that is this Hebrew word, beser. It means like a herald of good tidings. See, in Old Testament times, a commanding officer would have sent a servant from the battlefront with a message to the king. Here's one in 2 Samuel. The guy comes back, he says, I've got good news, beser, for my lord the king. Today, Yahweh has rescued you from all those who rebelled against you. And interestingly, the news isn't that the battle is over, that Yahweh was on their side. Actually, they were victorious. This isn't a message to say that they're still at it on the battlefront and they need extra help. They've won. 
No further action is required except to pledge allegiance to the king and live in the light of his victory. But a new and victorious king wasn't always good news for everyone. Some kings in Israel's history were oppressive tyrants. However, Isaiah anticipates the crucified and risen King Jesus, the true Lord of the world. His kingdom reign would be good news for all humanity, marked by self-giving love. He writes, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. And then when Jesus comes, he himself proclaims the good news of his coming kingdom. But more than that, he tells his disciples in Mark, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. He entrusts this message to them. So to be a disciple is to proclaim the good announcement that Jesus is king. Well day Kanye West. His disciples, a diverse band of ordinary folk, they're Isaiah's messengers with the beautiful feet. But Jesus didn't stop there. He later tells them, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. Disciples who make disciples. See, the trust is extended yet again to share this message. And we're still here 2,000 years later. The mandate hasn't changed. We're still called to be disciples who make disciples by proclaiming the good news. Oh, it's big, isn't it? We launched in quite fast. That was just the introduction. So we're going to turn to the text. We're still in John chapter 4. Um, We've been there a few weeks, but hopefully you can still manage to squeeze a bit of wisdom out of this passage. So I want to start by looking at water and food. First of all, water. So the whole story is situated around a well. It's where you go if you're thirsty to get water. And we've learned that as well as physical thirst, we also have a deep spiritual thirst. And for that, there's living water. To be found in relationship with Jesus. But today I want us to go a little bit further into the text. Here's a verse. It says, whoever drinks of this water, Jesus says, which I will give to him, will never be thirsty for eternity. We know that, right? That's the the living water. But the water which I will give to him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. See, this living water isn't just meant for us, it's meant to spring up. We're called not just to drink the living water, but to become a dispenser of living water. And in the same way, we're called not just to live in the freedom and victory of this good announcement, but we're also entrusted to announce it to others, to proclaim freedom and victory to them. Great, that was water, now food. Imagine this, right? Jesus is tired and hungry. He sits down at the well. Eventually gets chatting with this lady. But first of all, he sends his disciples off into town to get food. And and after a while, they come back. They've hiked up the hill. They sort of interrupt the conversation. And they're pleased with their findings. They say, Rabbi, eat something. We've got some great bits and bobs from the market. You've got to try this hummus. The falafel's amazing. And, And they're excited. But Jesus is like, nah, I'm all right, guys. And they're like, what? 
but you sent us in like an hour ago. We've gone. We've gone all the way there. We spent the money. We come back, and and he's like, Nah, I'm all right actually. I think I'm good. And they're like, What? What is going on? He draws them in, and he said, Listen, the thing is, I have food to eat that you do not know about. What? What is he on about? No one brought him anything to eat, did they? Peter, did you hot foot it with the bread up the hill ahead of us? But Jesus draws them in. He's like, my food is that I do the will of the one who sent me and I complete his work. And they're confused. But the penny starts to drop. There's normal material food like the water. But there's another source of spiritual nourishment. Jesus is sustained by hearing and obeying God's word. So many in the church will be on the bread journey. For those of you who are new, we're we're sort of reading through the New Testament together as a church. And each day we use this five-letter acronym to help us listen to what God might be saying to us through the text. Bread. So be still, read, encounter, apply, and devote. And I want to say that is why this apply, the application, is so crucial. Because Jesus' wisdom for his disciples and for us is that we're fed when we do God's will. Not just when we hear God's word, but when we actually put it into practice. Amazingly, today's passage out of the whole of the New Testament is Matthew chapter 28, otherwise known as the Great Commission. For those following on the app, today's video is called The Gospel, or Good News, of the Kingdom. And this verse in Matthew 28 says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Sorry, quick drink. Let's listen again to this verse. God's presence is guaranteed. He says, I am with you always. But what precedes it? He says, go and make disciples of all nations. See, God's presence and the act of making disciples go hand in hand. How do we make disciples? We proclaim the good announcement that Jesus is king. I want to say this. We're promised an encounter with the king. When we proclaim the kingdom of the king. You can tweet that. We're promised an encounter with the king. When we proclaim the kingdom of the king. And this got me thinking. Because when have I encountered God in recent weeks? And I was thinking about prayer on the streets. um, With Damalola. We're just um, just out and about in King's Cross. And we try and meet people. We try and pray with them. And uh, one time we... um, approached some of the King's Cross security guards and they they were like down by the birdcage um, outside the station and um, we're like hey how's it going guys um, like, how's your day going how's the shift like what's what's been happening any fun stories and we sort of have the chit chat and after a while Damalola sort of cuts in it's like as she does she's like that's enough of that and she's like let's get down to business um, this might sound weird but we're actually from a church up the road and we're just sort of wandering around trying to meet a few people but um, we wondered if we could pray for you. And the guy's like taken aback. But he's like, yeah, well, yeah, maybe. But um, I don't want none of your sort of quiet, mumbling, rubbish, boring prayers. I want a singing prayer. 
And I've got Damalola with me, and I sort of looked at her, and those of you who know Damalola will have looked at her in the same way, and we sort of smiled, and I said, mate, you have asked the right person. And we had this big chat, and after a while, we were about to go, and, and Damalola was like, wait, 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 I haven't actually sung. And she just launched into this mashup of Mary had a little lamb and all the blood of Jesus. And actually, a load of people all around us just started leaning in, and um, it was it just became this really fun, amazing moment. And there's this incredible sense of God's presence as like this almost stillness in the midst of this really hectic place. And we even got this spontaneous applause from the public at the end. But I felt like God was speaking to me about um, anxiety that this chap was carrying about his future. And I was able to share this with him and we prayed for him and we proclaimed Jesus' peace over his life. Um, and it was just such a cool moment. Another time we approached a man who's just uh, waiting for his train in the station and after a, a bit of conversation we asked him if he had a faith. Um, and he said he was actually a, what he called a lapsed Anglican. He said his um, wife wasn't actually a Christian and he was finding it a bit hard to practice his faith. And in some ways he felt he'd let God down because he stopped praying and reading the Bible and almost that sense of like perhaps God wasn't pleased with him. And I was able to share the story of the prodigal son. I shared with him how we couldn't earn Jesus' love. He was full of grace. that He was always looking for us to return to him. So it's in these moments when I most sense God's presence with me, when I'm sharing him with others. Don't forget, we're promised an encounter with the king when we proclaim the kingdom of the king. But if I'm honest, I so easily forget these moments and often get caught up in a sort of self-centered faith. So the implication of Jesus' message is hard-hitting. Have we been drinking the living water without sharing it with others? Or have we been missing out on divine food by not proclaiming our faith? We're promised an encounter with the king when we proclaim the kingdom of the king. John, a few weeks ago, he called, um, he just explained how we were called to proclaim how our story has found its place in God's story and how we were to bring it to bear on the stories of those around us. Romans 10 says, faith comes through hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. The challenge here is that we actually have to say the good news about Christ. So here's a few examples. We don't just want to show our friends how receiving God's forgiveness has given us strength to forgive. We want to tell them. We don't just want to show our family how God has comforted us in the midst of grief. We want to tell them. We don't just want to show our colleagues how God has exchanged our anxiety for his peace. We want to actually tell them. Tell them how your story has been caught up in God's story in a way that's relevant to their story. But this is often where we hit a problem. Because what's the response? Often it's sort of like, yeah, that's nice for you. If you feel that makes your life better, but my life is fine how it is without a sort of spiritual crutch. And we're like, what? We thought we were delivering the euangelion, the good announcement, the proclamation that Jesus is king and his kingdom marked by love and freedom is open to all. But we anticipate and perhaps experience people who are often disinterested at best 
and offended at worst. So let's go back to the text. Because Jesus wants to speak his truth into this woman's brokenness. To bring freedom and life. But he puts his finger on her area of need as a string of broken relationships and subsequent rejection from her community. But what's her response? It's, it's actually pretty strange. She says, sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? What? That's a complete curveball. Where did that come from? They were just getting somewhere in the conversation, and then there's this weird, um, yeah, curveball. Why is she talking about two mountains? Because what's behind these two mountains is two worldviews, two ways of relating to God, two ways of being human. And as he draws near, she deflects it by bringing to the forefront the thing that separates them as Jew and Samaritan. Here was a historical and long-standing clash of worldviews centered around the proper worship of God. Which of the two mountains should she worship on? Is Jerusalem or Gerizim? And do you ever feel like you're carrying the life-giving message of Jesus, but you get stuck when you try to share it? Maybe people deflect from the exciting message you want to give, or they focus on source of division between you. There seem to be so many obstacles in the way, so many questions and objections that need answering first. I don't know if anyone can relate to that. And I want us to think briefly about the con cultural context that we're speaking into. Where has the commonly held understanding of the world that many people share actually come from? So John Tyson uh, says that many in our cultural moment carry with them a hermeneutic of suspicion of meta-narratives, which sounds really complicated, but here's a sort of working definition. It's a way of looking at the world that is suspicious of any instance where someone claims to have an overarching narrative or story that is true for everyone. So how did we get here? I want to take us back to the 18th century, the Enlightenment, and um, in the Enlightenment, what you had was a rise of entrepreneurial, land-owning middle class that broke free of the old feudal system and started to believe that a new society would be ushered in with the development of science and technology. They began to overthrow inherited narratives of truth and to celebrate autonomy of thinking. Kant wrote at the time, An enlightened human being is one who trusts in his or her own power of thinking rather than authority or tradition. And then we sort of go a few centuries forward to the 20th century, and science and technology hadn't actually worked to bring peace and joy. A succession of people had come along with a vision of how the world should be, and they'd used power and violence to force it on others. We had the Great Depression, we had World War I and World War II and the Cold War. And what resulted was actually a suspicion of any claim to an overarching truth narrative. Foucault wrote at the time, truth is produced, so it doesn't exist, it's produced, only by multiple forms of constraint. And that includes the regular effect of power. 
And then I want to come to now. We're here in the 21st century in what Charles Taylor calls the age of authenticity. He writes, each one of us has his or her own way of realising our own humanity. It is important to find and to live out one's own way as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us either from outside, by society, or the previous generation, or religious or political authority. See, we now live in a society in which anybody who insists that they have the true story of the world is suspected of wanting to control us and get power over us to make us a slave of their ideology. So Christianity in this context becomes a narrative to gain control, a cultural straitjacket, the enemy of personal growth, of pluralism, of multiculturalism. And the result is actually a privatisation of our faith, as many of us feel a decreasing ability to share our faith in public. So subconsciously or consciously, we adhere to these commonly held beliefs. All stories are equal, and therefore it's unreasonable to proclaim the Christian story as true. Here's some statistics. So Barna, just um, 2018 in the US, 47% of Christians, so about half of Christians, believe it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in the hope that they will one day share the same faith. And a bit further back in 2012, the Evangelical Alliance did a study in the UK, and they found that 85%, so most of Christians, believe that the multi-faith environment means that people are uneasy about saying that Jesus is the only way. And we're caught in a tricky place. I'm sure many in this room who follow Jesus want to share him with others. But I also have a hunch that many of us are fearful of being rejected or of offending our friends by doing so. See, that all feels a bit deflating, doesn't it? I want to give you two bits of good news. Number one, here's the first one. I humbly submit to you that our culture's suspicion of meta-narrative is based on a somewhat flawed lo logic and that we can still make truth claims with confidence. You see, the thing is, if you say that all truth claims are power plays, then you yourself are making a power play. And if you say that all truth claims are just historically and culturally conditioned, then you're making a historically and culturally conditioned statement. And if you say that all truth claims are arrogant and wrong, you're, well, arrogant and wrong. Because the thing is, if we step back, we realise that all worldviews, including Christianity, include a set of faith assumptions about the nature of things. And C.S. Lewis is really helpful here. He says, you can't go on explaining away forever. You will find you have explained explanation away. You can't go on seeing through things forever. Because the whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. And it's so good that the window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque. What if you saw through the garden too? See, a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. See, in reality, we all have to make truth claims of some sort. And we have no alternative but to try and weigh them up responsibly. 
So let's not lose the confidence and ability to have good conversations about life, faith and meaning with those around us who see the world differently to us. Yes, that is a plug for Alpha. So let's go back to the text and we see how Jesus does this. Because this woman highlights a source of division, right, between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's loaded with pain because her ancestors have been excluded from proper worship of God for generations. Jesus says, believe me, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. I think back to our quote from C.S. Lewis. Jesus is saying, you can see through some stuff, like his one, it won't matter where you came from, you know, where you worship. Whether you're a Jew or a Samaritan, or you worship at Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. And here's another one. In fact, it won't actually matter what you've done in the past, whether you've been a faithful or an adulterous wife. Yeah, you can just feel her relief as Jesus makes a move to heal the division that she's experienced. No more struggling for the right to worship properly. No more tribalism. He doesn't get scared of offending her, but in love he makes a confident truth claim that brings her freedom. He says, but the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So you see through some things to see what's going on behind. And in this case, that's authentic relational worship where everyone is welcome. And that is good news. So that's one good point. The second is about the nature of truth itself. Because if we take a step backwards in the passage, we sort of bring all this into focus with these couple of lines. When was the last time she brought up division? She said, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? There's this historic aminosity. He goes, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. See, the gift of God is actually um, a loaded term. It referred to God's truth spoken to humanity. And the Samaritans believed that the gift of God was the Torah, a text. And the Jews believed that the gift of God was the Torah plus the prophets, essentially a different text. And interestingly, Muslims later believed that the gift of God was actually the Quran. But again, he supersedes this ancient argument by revealing an outstanding truth. The supreme gift of God is not a text, but it's a person, the person of Jesus. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. The truth is not a set of ideas about the right way to live that we can argue about, but it's a person, Jesus Christ. So there's two positive ideas, guys. One is that we can still make confident truth claims. And the other is that the truth is a person, Jesus Christ. So let's do a recap. We've said we're promised an encounter with the king when we proclaim the kingdom of the king. But when we proclaim this euangelion, this good announcement, we invite people not just to consider a set of true ideas, but we invite them to encounter Jesus, who is the truth. Instead of making a truth claim as a sort of power play to control people and limit their freedom, 
I can actually just stand aside and, and point to Jesus, the truth, who gave up his power. He sort of took on human flesh and he died in our place. And not to limit our freedom and bring conformity, but so that we could gain freedom and become our true selves. By proclaiming the truth, we're inviting others to encounter Jesus Christ. To become disciples that make disciples. I want to tell you about an amazing lady called Sally Utty. So she was my line manager when I worked for Christians Against Poverty. Very sadly, she died of cancer um, just two weeks ago. And I actually went to a service to celebrate her life um, just yesterday when I did the talk. Um, and Sally was an incredible lady that embodied this missional spirituality. So years ago, she had made a promise to God that whatever he told her to do, she would do it. And that, that packed service was full of stories of how she had touched multiple lives, strangers and friends, with her obedience and her compassion. The widowed, the suicidal, the homeless, those isolated by problem debt, those that nobody else had noticed. And her husband said a thing that stuck in my mind. He said Sally was always most excited when she was introducing people to Jesus for the first time. See, in all of her interactions, her aim was to try and get you to see beyond her to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And I personally witnessed several beautiful moments of her sharing Jesus with people. She just wouldn't stop inviting them to encounter him. It was the divine food that sustained her until she died. What's stopping us from living this life? What is stopping you inviting others to encounter Jesus by proclaiming the truth to a friend, a colleague or a neighbour? I'll be honest, I'm, I'm often anxious about what others will think of me. I, I discount myself because of my sin and I don't yet have everything sorted. I'm, I'm not confident that I can share my faith in an articulate and a compelling way. I also often just don't really know where to start and who to start with. But the enemy wants us to be paralysed, scared to move, too focused on our own sinfulness and our inadequacy. Let's go back to the text one more time. It's the first time in John's Gospel that Jesus explicitly tells anyone his true identity. He says it to her. He says, I, the one speaking to you, am the Messiah. I mean, who would you have told? He could first have told a respected Jewish man with great holiness and eloquence and reputation. But instead, he first tells a Samaritan woman who had every reason to discount herself. One, she was rejected by her community due to a life of sinfulness. Two, she was an enemy of the Jews. Three, she was a woman in a patriarchal culture. But as Pete beautifully described a few weeks ago, Jesus goes to great lengths to dignify her, to love her, to entrust her to go and proclaim the good announcement to her whole town. See, why does Jesus reach out to this lady of all people to entrust her with the message that he is the awaited Messiah? I think the answer is to demonstrate that if this person is in, then everyone is in. You, me, everyone is entrusted with his message. 
we are called, just like she was, to proclaim this good news. See, Jesus reached out to her with the truth that she was fully known and yet fully loved. And at first she deflects him. Her shame prevents her from letting him expose her sinfulness and bring healing. But bit by bit she begins to believe this good announcement. That perhaps this is the Messiah. That this is a Messiah that welcomes everyone with forgiveness. And she begins to locate her story in the story of God. A story of forgiveness and grace. And in doing so, she experiences redemption. She shouts, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Her sinful past becomes a thing to wave high without embarrassment. As she encounters him, her source of shame turns into a source of joy. And the stunning development is that her proclamation is an overflow of the redemption that she has experienced through an encounter with Jesus. Corinthians says this, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. And this makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. Our fragility, the reason we discount ourselves, this is what Jesus wants to redeem and to put at the heart of our proclamation. In Revelation 12, it says they have defeated the accuser by the blood of the lamb and the power of their testimony. See, she invites them to encounter. She shouts, could this be the Christ? She proclaims it with such passion that when she invites them, they all come to see Jesus. He stays with them for a few days and they encounter him for themselves. Here's the last verse we'll read. He said, they said, to the woman now we believe not just because of what you told us but because we have heard him ourselves now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world guys isn't it a relief that they weren't won over by her clever words or her perfect example they were invited by her passion her story of redemption the genuine overflow of her encounter with jesus and this cycle then repeats as they proclaim their faith in Jesus. She has become a disciple that makes disciples. And where did it start? She shouted, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? There's encounter, there's proclamation, and there's invitation.